Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by audiologist Jill Gruenwald and Dr. Matt Carlson, neurotologist, and we'll be discussing the audiogram. Jill, Dr. Carlson, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So just to hop in, uh, I want to say that today we'll be talking mainly about the adult audiogram. There are other forms of quote-unquote hearing tests, which include OAEs, ABRs, and there's more specific cochlear implant testing, which we won't be talking about quite as much today. But I was hoping we could just kind of walk stepwise through uh, what an audiogram looks like uh, for an adult patient. So, Jill, when you see these folks uh, who come for a quote-unquote hearing test, can you tell us what that looks like uh, when you perform an audiogram? Uh, I spend most of my day in a windowless sound booth, so the patient will come back into a room that has been sound treated to be very quiet. Uh, We adhere to standards of how loud the ambient noise can be in the room, so lots of sound treatment, soundproofing in those booths. We take a case history. We perform otoscopy. We will uh, determine what types of headphones to use. We have options to use headphones that sit over the patient's ears. We have options to use foam insert earphones that go into the ear canals. And then we play a series of tones trying to pick up on the softest sounds those patients can hear. And how do you decide whether or not you do over-the-ear headphones versus the earbuds? That's a great question. Sometimes it will have to do with the patient's ear. If we think that we uh, run the risk of what's called a collapsing canal, we will choose an insert earphone. A collapsing canal is when the weight of the headphone pushes back on the ear canal and gives us a little hearing loss. That's because the ear canal is closing, not because of a real change in threshold. Insert earphones have the advantage of a greater interaural attenuation. I think we're going to talk masking later, and that'll come into play uh, when it talks about if we have to mask. Although some patients find insert earphones uncomfortable, they do have to be rolled up and go quite deep into the ear canal. Uh, So for pediatric patients or patients with comfort issues, we may stick with the supraoral over-the-ear earphones. And before we get much further into how the audiogram is performed and what it looks like on paper, can you remind us a little bit about what sound is? What is a decibel? What does zero dB mean? And what does this look like in terms of day-to-day function? A decibel is a unit of sound measurement. It's based on the power of 10. There are different decibel scales. There are decibel scales in sound pressure level, or dBSPL. Uh, This is measured relative to 20 micropascals, the quietest sound pressure level that normally hearing people hear. It's an absolute value. So when you're talking about decibels in the community as measured with a sound level meter, you're talking about dBSPL. What's different is on the audiogram. Uh, the human ear hears at different dBSPL by pitch. So for the dBHL scale, uh, which you see on the audiogram, normal hearing is normalized to zero. So a straight zero on the audiogram, dBHL is normal hearing, and then we have ranges around that. Essentially, a decibel of zero is the reference range of silence, and 10 dB is 10 times that loudness or intensity, and 20 dB is 100 times that loudness or intensity. It's on a logarithmic scale. And can you give us an idea of what normal conversation is? At what decibel does that occur? What are some examples of extremely loud uh, decibels? 
Um, yeah. Normal conversation would be around 60 decibels. A jet engine is going to be around 120 decibels. A whisper might be around 30 decibels. So now that we've laid the foundation for that, uh, let's start talking about the audiogram, which at face value, we're, we're talking about a box with a bunch of dots and lines on it. Could you briefly walk us through what this box is? What's the x-axis? What's the y-axis? And what do these dots represent? The x-axis going horizontally is going to be your frequency or pitch. It is ordered from low pitches on the left to higher pitches on the right. Uh, The y-axis vertically is going to be the hearing threshold measured in decibels HL. So zero decibels will be near the top. And loud sounds, uh, 120, 130 decibels will be near the bottom. At every pitch, we measure the softest sound the person can hear. We call that their threshold. Uh, That's the lowest intensity at which the patient responds 50% of the time. And we plot that on the audiogram using X's for the left ear and O's for the right ear. And can you tell us what's considered low frequency, mid-frequency, and high frequency on the audiogram? On the audiogram, which is largely created to measure speech, we consider low frequencies 250 and 500 hertz, mid-frequencies 1,000 to 2,000 hertz, and high frequencies 4,000 to 8,000 hertz. If we have any uh, music aficionados listening, we know that for music that's very different. (laughs) And what's the, the range of frequencies for human speech? When we're born, humans can hear from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. And the audiogram is really focused on that speech range, 250 to 8,000 hertz. Although there are some extended high frequencies that can be tested for special purposes. When you're performing an audiogram, how do you decide which frequencies to obtain? Is there a standard set of frequencies that you obtain? And what are some rules around when you do or do not obtain additional frequencies? The standard audiogram will include thresholds measured at 250, 500, 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, and 8,000 hertz standard. Uh, If we see a difference between those octaves of greater than 20 decibels, we will test what is called the inter-octave. So between 500 and 1,000, that's 750 hertz. Between 1 and 2, it's 1,500 hertz. Between 2 and 4, 3,000. Between 4 and 8, 6,000. 3,000 and 6,000 hertz in particular are very sensitive to noise exposure. Um, So a lot of clinics have begun standardly testing three and six almost every time. And when you perform an audiogram, there's the air conduction and the bone conduction thresholds. So this starts to measure different types of hearing. Can you give us a description of what air conduction means and what bone conduction means? And then how do you test these different types of hearing? When we are testing via air conduction, we are using either a supraoral headphone or an insert earphone to send the sound wave through the entire chain. That sound wave has to go through the ear canal, the tympanic membrane, the ossicles. It has to reach the cochlea and travel up the nerve to be heard by the brain. That is our ear conduction pathway. When we're testing via bone conduction, we are using uh, the bone oscillator or the bone vibrator, a little black box that we put on the mastoid process behind the ear. That is going to use vibration to send that sound wave via the bone to the cochlea, bypassing the outer ear and the middle ear entirely. And does that bone oscillator sit on the ear? Is there an apparatus that places that there or is it being held there? 
it is being held by a headband on the mastoid process. It will stimulate uh, hearing on both sides. So you can also put bone oscillators on the forehead in cases where you can't put it on the mastoid or really any part of the skull bone, although there might be corrections you have to use if you have to change the placement from the mastoid. And I know, you know, maybe with someone with perfect hearing, uh, their air conduction is going to equal bone conduction most likely, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. So how do you know when to obtain bone conduction? Do you always obtain it or is there uh, some sort of rule you follow in terms of when you obtain bone conduction? If you're seeing a new patient that has never been seen before, it is good practice to test bone conduction every single time. Sometimes if we have a known bilateral symmetric hearing loss, say from the aging process, and the person comes two years later and the air conduction has not changed at all, we'll assume the bone conduction hasn't changed at all either and not test for bone. Um, Sometimes if somebody has a completely normal hearing audiogram via ear conduction and there's no suspicion of something like superior canal dehiscence or any conductive components, bone conduction will be skipped. But in general, it should be there just about every time. Next, I wanted to talk about the different types of hearing loss, which we're starting to get into with air conduction and bone conduction. Dr. Carlson, can you uh, briefly describe to us the examples of air conduction, what that means, and bone conduction, what that means, and then maybe what's on your differential diagnosis for the different types of hearing? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. You know, classically, we would describe a conductive hearing loss as any condition that affects the auditory pathway that inhibits the sound waves uh, to reach the cochlea and stimulate the hair cells. So technically it could be starting from externally, you could have a congenital oral atresia, you could have cerumen impaction, you could have otitis externa, a thickened tympanic membrane, a tympanic membrane perforation, acicular discontinuity, tympanosclerosis, otosclerosis, anything that's affecting the acicular chain up into the cochlea, and we'd call that conductive hearing loss. Over recent years, we've developed an understanding that there is a so-called inner ear conductive hearing loss, and there's two or three conditions that can cause that. It's probably because the energy is still dissipated before it actually causes deflections in the hair cells, even though it's involving the inner ear. So examples of that are typically third window conditions. So superior canal dehiscence and large vestibular aqueduct are two examples uh, that we'll commonly talk about that, that are associated with inner ear conductive hearing loss. There's also an interesting phenomenon that sometimes we'll perform cochlear implantation with attempted hearing preservation. And in the low frequencies, post-operatively, initially, they'll have an airbone gap or conductive hearing loss. But over time, that effusion will resolve, and they'll still be left with a conductive hearing loss. And there is some thought that perhaps the electrode within the scala tympani is uh, pushing on the basilar membrane, and that might actually also cause an inner ear conductive hearing loss. A little bit more detailed, but just to, just to point out the fact that most conductive hearing losses relate to disorders affecting anything up to the cochlea, but there are rare exceptions where you can have inner ear conductive hearing loss. Sensory neural hearing loss most commonly indicates a condition that has an end effect on the sensory hair cells. They're mechanosensory hair cells affecting the inner ear. The inner ear hair cells are important for actually sending the electrical signal to the brain, which is perceived as sound. The outer ear hair cells are primarily involved in refining that sound for the inner ear hair cells uh, to transmit that signal. We're born with about 15,000 inner ear hair cells at birth and a larger number of spiral ganglion cells, which are the bipolar neurons that convey that signal to the brain. And over time, every day we live, every time we hear a little bit of loud noise, anytime we have an ototoxic medication, perhaps we have a hereditary disposition or we're aging, all these can result in varying degrees of sensory neural hearing loss. 
There are other conditions that can cause sensory neural hearing loss besides conditions affecting the inner ear. So you can have conditions affecting the auditory nerve itself or the cochlear nerve. And examples of that might be a person who's had prior radiation, a person who's had prior uh, posterior fossa surgery, a person born with hypoplasia or aplasia of the cochlear nerve, or even a traumatic avulsion, for example, uh, of the cochlear nerve. And then even more proximal, you can have conditions of the brainstem uh, and the supratentorial space that affects auditory uh, perception, including cognitive disorders, which affects the processing of the signal, even though you're getting a refined signal. So really talking about the entire pathway, conductive is typically a peripheral process. Sensory neural is typically from the cochlea and more proximally. And then you can have a mixed condition. And for a mixed condition to occur, you need your bone conduction thresholds have to be worse than normal. So you have to have at least a 25 decibel uh, or worse bone conduction line. Most people will say at least a 10 dB airbone gap for it to be really considered a true airbone gap. And I was just going to say, we, we threw around the term airbone gap, but c- Jill, could you tell us functionally what that looks like on the audiogram and what that means? Yeah, if the bone conduction threshold on the audiogram is better than the air conduction threshold by 10 dB or greater, we will refer to that as an airbone gap. You're hearing better by bone conduction than air conduction. And what are your limits in terms of performing air conduction and bone conduction on patients? How high can you go, or what are some other limitations that keep you from conducting these measurements? We do have limitations of the audiometer, how loud our equipment can actually present the signal. We have limitations on what we call the transducer, which for air conduction is the headphones or the insert earphones, how loud they can get. For bone conduction, it is that bone oscillator. The other limitation we have is that if we get sufficiently loud, if someone has a lot of hearing loss via air or bone, the threshold could become vibrotactile. And that means that the patient is actually feeling the signal. They can feel the sound wave rather than hear it, and they will respond. You can see this on your audiogram. Usually there will be a little V next to the symbol for vibrotactile. And just functionally, that means for the clinician uh, reading it that they basically don't have hearing in that ear. Is that correct? Or that it's poorer than what we can represent on the audiogram because the patient is feeling it, so we can't um, get it any louder to determine what is hearing and what is feeling. And can you describe um, how we can bring all of this information together to make it uh, one number, otherwise known as a pure tone average, and uh, what are the breakdowns of the different magnitudes of hearing loss that uh, we talk about? The pure tone average is the average of the thresholds at 500, 1,000, 2,000, and 3,000 hertz. If you are looking at an audiogram that does not have 3,000 hertz, you can take the average of two and four and use that in your pure tone average. And then the magnitude of hearing loss ranges from normal hearing sensitivity to profound hearing loss. We consider normal hearing to be thresholds uh, better than 25 decibels, that is to say 0 to 25 decibels. Mild hearing loss would be 25 to 40 decibels. Moderate hearing loss, 40 to 55 decibels. Moderately severe hearing loss, 55 to 70. Severe, 70 to 90. And profound hearing loss are thresholds greater than 90 decibels. And do you give one diagnosis for a patient that they have moderate hearing loss or they just have profound hearing loss based on a pure tone average? Or do you look at the different variations among frequencies? 
That will vary clinician to clinician as well. A lot of providers will look at an audiogram and some will just take the average of where most of the peer tones are and in the report write that it is one of these categories. Some clinicians will get very specific and say at this frequency it is normal, at this frequency it is moderate, at this frequency it is severe. So a good knowledge of how to read the graph to accompany the written report is really good to have. And then a final question on that point is, I believe there's a caveat for kids. How does that change in children in terms of what normal hearing is? That's true. For adults, we have assumed that they have already developed speech and language, and therefore we call normal hearing thresholds better than 25 decibels. For children who may not have developed speech and language, there are some very soft speech sounds that can occur between 15 and 25 decibels. Therefore, we call normal hearing between 0 and 15. They will sometimes call it slight hearing loss, 15 to 25 decibels. And as we continue to talk about obtaining the audiogram, the topic of masking uh, comes up, and I think it's pretty confusing for ENT residents, certainly. Uh, Can you kind of unpack what the role of masking is in the setting of obtaining an audiogram? When has this become applicable, and what does it mean clinically in terms of how we interpret the audiogram? This is one of the most complicated concepts for audiologists to learn as well. If you have asymmetric sensory neural hearing loss, you will likely not see any masking on your audiogram. Masking comes into play when we are suspicious that the tone we are presenting to one ear could be crossing over to the other ear. Sometimes we call it the test ear and the non-test ear. So remember that every type of headphone we use has a different level at which these sounds can cross over. When we are using supraoral headphones and testing by air conduction, uh, a difference of 40 decibels could possibly cross over to the non-test ear. For insert earphones, it's more like 55 to 60 decibels. When we're using the bone oscillator, we assume that the minimum interaural attenuation is zero. Uh, It could be crossing over at any time. And in order to know which ear is giving us that response, we will introduce something called masking. Masking is when we deliver noise to the non-test ear to be sure that it cannot be responding to what we were presenting to the test ear. And that gives us confidence that we are testing each ear individually. So can you give us an example of how you might use this masking to mask the non-test ear? Yeah, so if I am a patient who has a normal hearing response in one ear and I'm using supraoral headphones and they uh, respond at, let's say, 50 decibels in the test ear, that is greater than the interaural attenuation of 40. I cannot be confident without masking that that 50 decibels is accurate and not crossing over to the better hearing ear. So the audiologist will present narrow band noise at that pitch in the non-test ear. The patient hears a soft sound. We present the tone again. If it stays put, then we know that's an accurate tone. If we have to increase the volume, we know that was a tone achieved by a crossover. And when we're talking about masking, there's another term we use called the masking dilemma. Can you explain that in a bit more detail? The masking dilemma is common when we have two ears with uh, maximum or near maximum airbone gaps or conductive hearing loss. When I'm trying to isolate the ears, I cannot present enough noise to the non-test ear without it crossing over to the test ear, and therefore I cannot mask individually and do not know where the sound is coming from. 
And the dilemma is that you can't deliver the signal to the contralateral ear because of the conductive hearing loss. So as we continue to talk about the audiogram, we have, we've talked about the X's and the O's representing the left and the right ear and how we obtain uh, the spots uh, on the graph. We've talked about air conduction and bone conduction representing conductive and sensory neural hearing. Um, could you just describe when we see a bracket on the audiogram, what does that mean? And what does it mean if there's a down pointing arrow on that bracket? The brackets are thresholds for bone conduction, and you will see two types of brackets. There's a bracket that looks like a greater than or less than sign. That is an unmasked bone threshold. There is also a bracket, a separate symbol for a masked bone conduction symbol, so it would be good to look at your key and be familiar with the different audiogram symbols. If you see a downward pointing arrow on any of the symbols, that means no response was obtained at the limits of the equipment, and it's assumed that the hearing uh, threshold is poorer than that symbol. Is there a pretty classic threshold at which you can kind of decide someone's hearing loss is if there is the downward pointing arrow? For example, does that mean it's worse than 100 or worse than 125 dB, or is there not uh, a control in that regard? Yeah, without because our equipment is at the limits, it could be 5 decibels worse than where that downward pointing arrow is. It could be 50 decibels worse than where that downward pointing arrow is, and there's no way for us to know based on our equipment. So as we wrap up what the graph looks like uh, on the audiogram, there are some classic audiogram patterns that are worth talking about and thinking about or having on the front of your mind when you're seeing these audiograms. Dr. Carlson, do you mind just running us through some of these more classic audiogram patterns? Yeah, absolutely. I think we can break them down into sensory neural hearing loss patterns as well as conductive or mixed hearing loss patterns and the different diseases that classically present that way. And it it's probably important to emphasize that these are just patterns and there is extreme variability in the way they uh, may present clinically. Uh, and, and as with everything in medicine, you have to take the full context of the patient when you're interpreting the audiogram. But having said that, uh, there are some characteristic features or patterns that we often see. So, for example, a noise-induced hearing loss, uh, whether from a single loud exposure but more commonly from sustained loud noise exposure from somebody who's a farmer or exposed to heavy machinery uh, over time can have a 4K notch. Uh, it's commonly bilateral, but in many cases it could be unilateral. A unilateral uh, noise notch around 4K is frequently seen in people who have an asymmetrical exposure to noise. So recreationally, that might be somebody who sh uh, fires a long gun, a rifle or something like that, where there's a degree of head shadow effect protecting one of the ears, whereas, uh, for example, a handgun is typically a little bit more symmetrical. Or you could have the farmer that's always looking over his left shoulder to, uh, when they're watching their combine, when they're driving their tractor. That's another example where you may have asymmetrical noise notch. A presbycusis typically results in a, a gradual high-frequency downsloping symmetrical sensory neural hearing loss uh, affecting both ears. A mid-frequency loss, typically called a cookie bite, is indicative of a hereditary hearing loss. It's common uh, that a uh, young adult or mid-aged adult will develop this if they have a family history of hearing loss. A low frequency, particularly if it's fluctuating, asymmetrical hearing loss is commonly indicative of uh, Meniere's disease. I would say that these are the most common patterns we see with sensory neural hearing loss, or at least those that are commonly talked about. Then we can talk about conductive hearing loss. So a low frequency, starting at a low frequency airbone gap, uh, particularly when there's an added Carhartt notch. A Carhartt notch is an artificial depression bone conduction threshold centered on 2,000 hertz. Um, this is most indicative of otosclerosis, but there are other diseases that can often result in a Carhartt notch, so it's nonspecific. 
Uh, and you can also have low-frequency conductive hearing loss involving other uh, diseases. You can also have that so-called inner ear conductive hearing loss that we talked about earlier. And most commonly, you'll see in uh, superior semicircular canal dehiscence in the affected ear, you'll see superconducting bone thresholds. See, so the bone conduction thresholds will be at minus 10. Uh, so the hearing is very acute or very good in the low frequencies on uh, bone lines. And then your pure tone thresholds will be uh, slightly worse, so it creates this airbone gap. But the contributions of the airbone gap are different for superior canal dehiscence than for otosclerosis, at least it's believed so. And that is because the airbone gap is created by a better bone conduction threshold and a slightly worse air conduction. So that spreads the gap. Versus otosclerosis, it's typically the, primarily the conductive component that drops your pure tone thresholds. And Jill, can you give us a description of what might be described as asymmetric hearing loss on an audiogram? This is hotly debated for in most audiology clinics and with most uh, physicians, I believe. But uh, generally, if you see a 15 decibel gap at two contiguous frequencies or 10 decibels at three contiguous frequencies, it would be reasonable to call that asymmetric. Uh, we will also look at the word recognition scores. I think we're going to talk about speech testing in a little bit. Also hotly contested, what uh, is considered an asymmetry, although many clinics will adopt a 15% difference. So we've talked about uh, obtaining the pure tones, uh, you know, listening to the, the tones to each ear. And I next wanted to talk or move on to speech recognition. Jill, can you give us uh, an idea of how you test that and what that looks like in the sound booth? We usually do two types of speech testing in a normal adult battery. The first is called the SRT, or the speech recognition threshold. These are two-syllable words that have an equal amount of stress on each syllable. Some common ones might be airplane, cowboy, baseball. We will lower the volume of these words and call the threshold where the patient gets 50% of the words correct. The SRT is largely a cross-check for the pure tone thresholds. They should match up with the softest sounds by tones and the softest sounds by speech for that test should be relatively similar. Sometimes this helps us understand if a person is exaggerating or malingering on a hearing test. The other type of speech test we do is the word recognition score. These are going to be monosyllabic words, usually a list of phonemically balanced words, which means the list will represent all the phonemes of the language. Ship, dash, wreck. We will score the words correct. Most clinicians are looking for the maximum performance the patient can have, and generally we get the maximum performance through adequate audibility. We will choose a volume that is 30 to 40 decibels above the pure tone average, although if you have somebody with a quite severe flat hearing loss, that might be too loud. If you have somebody with a very steeply sloping hearing loss, you might need more audibility in the high frequencies to get a maximum performance. The only guaranteed way to get a patient's maximum performance is to present word lists more than, at more than one volume. Typically, we don't have a lot of time to do that clinically, so the clinician is selecting one or two volumes, presenting a word list, and recording the percentage correct. So between different patients, you're not necessarily doing the word recognition score at the same volume? 
Not necessarily, although it depends what you are looking for. If you're looking for changes in word understanding ability and the pure tones have not changed, it may be beneficial to present the words at the same volume to see if there's big changes in word recognition score. If the patient's hearing loss is progressing, then presenting at the same volume may just mean less audibility and a lower percentage score simply means they couldn't hear as much. So generally, if the patient has more hearing loss, we present at a higher volume. And could you speak a little bit to the differences in how maybe an outside provider might obtain word recognition score and how those differences might actually matter? It'll be important to look at the level at which the speech was presented. That can vary center to center as it's the provider's discretion a lot of times how loud they are going to present the speech signal. If there's not sufficient audibility, we think we'll get a lower score. The other thing that can happen across clinics is you can present recorded stimuli, meaning that you are using a computer or a tape or a compact disc to present word lists that have been specially calibrated and recorded by one speaker, or you can use monitored live voice. Monitored live voice is when the clinician reads the list of words and tries to monitor or calibrate their own volume. It's widely known that monitored live voice results in greater variability in scores and generally higher percentage scores than if you use recorded stimuli. And is there a generally accepted variability among word recognition score even by the same patient and the same audiologist? There will be, and a lot of that will hinge on the number of words in the word list presented. If you present a patient 10 words, you can see high variability between lists in, uh, in percentage correct. If you present 50 or 100 words, you will see less variability. I think when you get down to the research, you find that most clinics do 20 or 25 word lists, and you can have swings of 20, 25% list to list, even if it's recorded. Uh, which is why the clinical utility is great, but should be taken with a grain of salt. And how does uh, word recognition and speech recognition differ from traditional cochlear implant candidacy assessment? Everything that we are doing in an audiogram is going to be unaided with the patient's natural hearing. They are hearing those single words through headphones or through insert earphones. We can make some assumptions about who might be a cochlear implant candidate based on how many words they got correct. But to be considered a cochlear implant candidate, we need to know what you can do while aided. So using a hearing aid, bone anchored implant, what have you. And is there a general rule of thumb that we follow in terms of looking at the audiogram that's performed, the PTA, and the word recognition score, that if a patient is at a certain level of hearing, that we know that more or less they're going to be a good cochlear implant candidate? That is growing. I think your traditional slam dunk cochlear implant candidates were going to have moderately severe to profound hearing loss. So pure tone averages 70 decibels or greater, and they're going to have word recognition scores 40 to 50 percent or lower. And Dr. Carlson, uh, especially in research, uh, there are different ways that we classify the severity of hearing loss. Can you walk us through those classes uh, and how you might apply them clinically? Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> there's different ways you can classify hearing loss. One is what we already talked about uh, quite a bit, and that's classifying somebody as having conductive hearing loss, 
sensorineural hearing loss, or mixed hearing loss. And then secondly, you want to quantify the magnitude of the hearing loss, as we already talked about. So normal hearing is anything less than 25 dB. Mild is 25 to 40. Moderate is 40 to 55. Moderately severe, which is variably used, uh, 55 to 70. Then the cochlear implant range we're commonly talking about is severe to profound. Uh, severe is 70 to 90 decibels, and profound is greater than 90 decibels. As we alluded to earlier, the upper output limits of a commercial audiometer is about 120 dB, so we're not able to test beyond that. So profound is uh, anything greater than 90 dB. As we talked about earlier, uh, we don't typically just say somebody has moderate hearing loss or somebody has severe hearing loss unless they have a really flat audiogram. A more descriptive way to do that, you know, the best thing is for the clinician just to see the audiogram. It's just a picture is worth a thousand words. But if you are going to describe it with words, it's helpful to say things like mild downsloping to moderate or moderate upsloping to mild. And that might be like a Meniere's pattern hearing loss or something like that. So it's more descriptive. Or sometimes people will use phrases like a ski slope audiogram, which indicates a precipitous decline. It's usually in the mid-frequencies around 1,500 hertz. Uh, So those are the ways that uh, people typically classify the varying levels of hearing loss. And Jill alluded to earlier, I think it's really important for us to understand as clinicians that the audiogram has a poor ability to predict who's going to actually qualify based on cochlear implant testing, two distinctly separate tests. So the audiogram and behavioral peer tones and word recognition score, which is distinctly different than the testing for a cochlear implant. And the rule of thumb that you had mentioned earlier, uh, Dr. Goobles has a great paper on this. And basically 70 or 75 dB hearing loss in the low and mid frequencies and uh, from around 40% word recognition score or poor. That person has a pretty good chance of um, qualifying for cochlear implantation, but you'll have to, again, they'll have to get the more comprehensive cochlear implant canacy assessment with best-aided hearing. Whenever you're thinking about, uh, again, we have a whole separate podcast in this, and I encourage the listener to, to view this on adult cochlear implantation, but you always want to look at the entire clinical picture. For example, adding background noise can considerably change somebody's ability to understand words. Some people compensate relatively well with background noise, and other people deteriorate by even adding a little bit of background noise. And so, when a person comes in and they say, I know my hearing test shows that I'm doing okay, but, I, but doc, I'm just not functioning well. You add any bit of background noise and I'm, you know, forget it. I'm done. I, and I've been increasingly socially isolated. I haven't been going out. My social life is horrible. Uh, in those situations, we'll do more comprehensive testing, even if the audiogram doesn't indicate that their hearing loss is uh, as significant. I do want to mention one other thing, and we've talked about it, but I think it uh, is a critically important aspect, and that's test-retest variability, and that's on pure tones as well as word recognition score, and also variance in testing quality between centers on the audiogram and what that might mean for a clinician. So it's generally accepted that a standardized audiogram, when it's performed correctly, uh, test-retest variability between a pure tone levels is about 10 dB. And the word recognition score variability, again, is dependent on the number of words uh, you're using in your word list. So that's test-retest variability. The second thing I want to mention is there's been many times where we've had an outside audiogram um, performed, and they'll come in, and what they're describing is distinctly different than what their audiogram looks like. And in those situations, particularly if we're considering uh, the patient being an operative candidate, I'll always repeat the hearing test. Um, And I'll also use my forks to confirm it. Most commonly, we use a 512 tuning fork, and we're performing Weber and Renee tests to help confirm our findings before we, particularly if we're considering operating. And just to give you a couple examples, I've seen a person who came in with a small tumor in a vestibular schwannoma, and their word recognition score was designated 25% on their speech audiometry. 
and they were telling me that they could use the telephone on that side and things weren't adding up. So we repeated and it was 75% here. And that might totally change your surgical approach and what it means for the patient for the rest of their life based on that result. The same thing can be true with sensory neural function and conductive hearing loss. If you're operating on a patient for otosclerosis, you better be sure they have a conductive hearing loss, not a sensory neural hearing loss, or else afterwards you're going to think you gave them a dead ear or <laughs> you had a big drop in your sensory neural function, even though uh, all along perhaps the testing was inaccurate. So when you always have to look at the entire clinical picture, use your tuning forks, repeat the audiogram, particularly if you're considering an operation on a patient. I think uh, those, those aspects are critical. And then lastly, I'll say have a good conversation with your audiologist. I have Jill's number on speed dial. Anytime a patient comes in and something's not adding up, or if she saw somebody, she'll sometimes page me and just say, you know, testing wasn't really reliable. I spent a lot of time with them in the sound booth, and sometimes it's because of cognitive issues or developmental problems, but other times there might be other factors that are contributing to this test. Remember, this is all behavioral audiometry, which is separate uh, from what we call objective audiometry, DPOEs and ABR. Uh, DPOEs and ABR are not influenced by a person's input. They are objective testing uh, versus behavioral audiometry requires that a person is able to interact with you well and respond consistently. Um, so if you're finding things that aren't adding up, repeat the test and uh, always consult with your audiologist who perform the test. Two very valuable insights I think that are worth mentioning. And Dr. Carlson, when thinking about the reliability of an audiogram, clinically, can you test patients with a tuning fork? And what's your rule of thumb regarding which tuning fork you're using and what that might mean for their hearing loss? The tuning fork examination is a critical part of an otologic assessment of a patient. It can be used initially in a diagnostic capacity, as we discussed earlier. Also, the tuning fork examination is very helpful to confirm your previous audiometric testing. In otolaryngology, most commonly a 512 hertz tuning fork is used uh, for audiometric assessment. Sometimes you'll use a 128 or 256 or a very low-frequency tuning fork for evaluation of proprioception and also confirming or evaluating superior canal dehiscence. But with regard to confirming your audiogram, you're usually talking about a 512 hertz tuning fork. With respect to confirming your audiogram, we're specifically talking about a Weber test and a Rene test. And I think understanding how to interpret them is important and also uh, understanding their limitations. With the Weber test, you'll strike the tuning fork and you'll place it on an area of thin skin, most commonly on the forehead, sometimes on the bridge of the nose. And we don't usually do this because it seems kind of cruel, but it will give you a very accurate test, actually placing it right on the central incisors or just on top of the central incisors. And this will give you maximal bone conduction. It should be on the midline. And the... Weber test is able to distinguish a difference between ears as small as 5 dB, and that's uh, what most studies will show. And so a Weber test will lateralize to the side with better sensorineural hearing loss or the side with greater conductive hearing loss. So, for example, a person with unilateral effusion who otherwise reported normal hearing weeks ago, the tuning fork would typically lateralize to the side with the conductive hearing loss. In contrast, the person who has a normal otologic examination without effusion, but you're concerned for sudden idiopathic sensory neural hearing loss, you'd expect the tuning fork to go to the contralateral side, the side with better nerve hearing. The Rene test is the second test we commonly talk about, and that's for distinguishing air and bone conduction. So once again, most commonly the 512 hertz tuning fork is used, and there's a lot of different ways providers will perform this test. What's described in the textbook and the most standard way to perform this test is to first strike the tuning fork and hold it behind the ear on the mastoid. Again, you have to, I always say, I'm sorry, this is going to apply a lot of pressure here, but I just really want to make sure I'm getting accurate tests. So you'll strike the tuning fork, put it behind the mastoid, and you'll hold it there until the person or the patient is unable to hear the sound any longer. 
Then you'll remove it from the mastoid and place it just on the side of the ear canal next to the meatus. And correctly, you're supposed to place it only two or three centimeters and nothing more than that from the external auditory canal. And if they hear the sound louder in the external auditory canal than from behind the ear, that indicates that they don't have a significant airbone gap. Or in other words, it indicates that they don't have a large conductive hearing loss. If the person is able to hear the sound over the mastoid longer or better than through air conduction, that indicates they do have a conductive hearing loss. And most commonly, most references will say that if you have a test where bone conduction is greater than air conduction, that usually indicates a 15 to 25 decibel airbone gap in most situations. I think it's worth pointing out a couple pitfalls of this test and other ways people will perform it. But if you don't push hard enough or firm enough on a bony prominence, you won't get an accurate result because there's attenuation or absorption of the acoustic energy or vibratory energy in the soft tissue. That's the first thing. And then when you're performing the Rene test, if you hold the tuning fork too far away for when you're testing air conduction, you can also get an inaccurate test. By convention, if air conduction is greater than bone conduction, which is the normal configuration, uh, you say the test is positive. If you find out that bone conduction is greater than air conduction by convention, you say the person has a negative test. Uh, just uh, lastly, uh, people will perform this test differently sometimes, and actually I commonly will do this. I'll say which sound is louder, and I'll strike the tuning fork hard and place it in front of their ear canal three to four centimeters away. Uh, and then I'll place it behind their ear and I'll say which, which one is louder. Uh, you can also strike the tuning fork and place it in front of the external auditory canal first and wait till they can no longer hear it and then put it on the mastoid. And if they can continue to hear it on the mastoid after they couldn't uh, by placing it out, outside the external auditory canal, that again indicates that they have a conductive hearing loss on that side. And along those lines, could you speak to uh, the classifications of hearing as it pertains to research and also what we consider functional and non-functional hearing when we're talking about the actual patient? That's a great question. So particularly when we're talking about patients with skull-based disease, historically there were these classification systems, the 1995 AOHNS classification system for functional versus non-functional hearing is typically graded on class A through D. Class A and B are uh, what we would call functional hearing or aidable hearing. And then C and D are non-functional or non-serviceable hearing. And that cut off a very easy thing to remember is the 50-50 rule. So if a person has better than 50% word recognition and better hearing than 50 dB for a pure tone average, then they have so-called functional hearing, and that would be an AO, HNS class A or B. In 2012, the AOHNS redefined what they would like reported, uh, particularly from a research standpoint, to provide more granular results in reporting. And so there's actually a scattergram that's commonly used that defines a change in pure tone levels uh, before and after an intervention, change in word recognition score before and after an intervention, that also uh, defines the baseline levels. Um, in neurosurgery, what's commonly used is the Gardner-Robinson classification system. That's a one through five, but uh, fortunately, uh, grades one and two align almost perfectly with AO, HNS, A, and B. So Gardner-Robinson one or two essentially equals AO, HNS, class A or B. That's how we typically will look at whether or not a patient has functional hearing when we're considering surgical approaches for skull-based disorders. For example, if they have non-functional, non-serviceable hearing, we might be more inclined to perform a ablative procedure that sacrifices hearing as a part of the operation, such as a translabyrinthine approach. Again, this is a lot more nuanced than what I'm describing right now, but just as a general rule of thumb, that's, what's, that's what we could you know, consider thinking about. I think separately we should also just talk about what's truly functional hearing versus non-functional hearing. That is, what can a conventional hearing aid 
successfully aid for a patient who has hearing loss and what is beyond the limits of what a hearing aid can probably provide. So in general, again, wide variance between patients, but as a general rule of thumb, if a person has worse than 60% word recognition scores, a conventional hearing aid will provide less benefit. You can turn up the volume, but it's just going to be garbled, and they won't be able to discern words accurately. When you talk about pure tone levels, typically the cutoff for being able to aid it with the hearing aid in the low frequencies is about 80 decibels, and the ability to aid successfully in the higher frequencies is a little bit better, so you could even go up to 90 decibels or approximately in that value uh, with a conventional hearing aid. But again, there's significant variance from patient to patient in what they'll uh, consider good. I'll say a lot of that has to do with what their hearing is in their other ear. So if you take a person who has normal hearing in one ear and 60% word recognition in their other ear, on average, they're really going to not like their hearing aid as much because they're comparing it to the good ear. But take, for example, a patient that has 75% word recognition in both ears, they're going to really benefit from binaural hearing aids in that situation because both ears are compromised. So again, the idea of considering the, uh, the entire patient, the entire picture, uh, when you're considering clinical management. Uh, moving on, I wanted to talk about tympanometry. Jill, could you tell us what is tympanometry? How do you perform tympanometry? And what are the types of uh, tympanograms that you get through these readings? Tympanometry is a great complement to the audiogram to hopefully give the provider more information about what's going on with the middle ear. When I perform a tympanogram, I put a tip into the ear canal, and that tip uses air pressure to measure the tympanometric peak. Uh, this occurs when the pressure in the ear canal equals the pressure in the middle ear. So a normal tympanogram will look like a mountain peak. It will uh, look like that peak is around zero. Um, you will see different types of tympanometry graphs. For example, if you have a completely flat line, no peak at all, we'll sometimes call that a type B tympanogram or a flat tympanogram. That can indicate stiffening of the middle ear. It can also indicate a patent PE tube or a perforation of the tympanic membrane. You can see a uh, tympanogram in which the peak pressure is skewed negative. Uh, we call that a type C tympanogram. That's uh, typically eustachian tube dysfunction. Sometimes you can see that mountain peak, that tympanogram, where the um, peak is very high or hyper-compliant. Sometimes we see a tympanogram where the peak is quite high or hyper-compliant. That can indicate a secular discontinuity. Or a tympanogram where there is hypo-compliance or a shallow peak, uh, which can be uh, stiffening of the acicular chain, as with otosclerosis. And can you briefly talk to us about the ear canal volume measurement and what this might mean for us clinically. In addition to the tympanic peak pressure and the compliance, you should get a number for the ear canal volume. And uh, this is a rough estimate of ear canal volume, which can help you determine if there is a tympanic membrane perforation or if there's a PE2 present and can help you determine if that is patent or occluded. I'd like to echo exactly what Jill said. Uh, just very briefly, I think these are key things to really uh, remember as a resident. Um, type A tempanogram is normal. Peak should be centered uh, right or close to zero. Type C tympanogram indicates negative pressure, usually eustachian tube dysfunction. It doesn't mean you don't have fluid. There are some people who have type C tympanograms, and you'll also see air bubbles or fluid levels in there too. Type B, small volume, indicates uh, middle ear effusion most commonly. Type B, large volume, typically over 1 or 1.5 cc's, um, indicates a tympanic membrane perforation or a patent P tube. 
Uh, AD tympanometry in- indicates hypercompliance, and that's usually in the indicative of two things, a secular discontinuity or also a, a dimeric or flaccid tympanic membrane. Somebody's had multiple sets of P-tubes, and you can see a lot of movement in it. And then finally, AS or A-shallow uh, indicates a more stiffened acicular uh, unit or tympanic membrane. That could be from tympanosclerosis, uh, autosclerosis, et cetera. I next wanted to talk about the stapedial reflex or the acoustic reflex. Jill, could you tell us practically what does it look like to measure this, both the threshold and what we know as the reflex decay? The patient will have tips in each ear. One tip we refer to as the probe, and that probe is measuring the actual muscle contraction, the actual reflex. Uh, The stimulus is delivering a sound, usually a fairly loud volume reflex thresholds are anywhere between 70 and 100 decibels. Uh, The patient will hear the loud sound and we will measure with the probe if there is a change in acoustic admittance, a change in the energy coming back from the ear. Uh, We label the threshold at the softest sound where we see this reflex. And where does decay fit in here? For acoustic reflex decay, you first have to have a threshold. If you have a present threshold, and if we're able to go 10 decibels louder than that threshold, we will play that sound for 10 seconds and we'll measure the strength of the reflex. If it degrades by more than 50% in that 10 second window, we call that positive for acoustic reflex decay. And Dr. Carlson, could you shed some light on maybe the physiology behind how this works and practically how is this used clinically? Yeah, so the tapedial reflex pathway is something that's commonly tested on, and there are some things that are just better to draw out yourself and commit it to memorization, particularly before tests, et cetera. Uh, And this is one of those things, almost analogous to the Krebs cycle or something like that. But I do think there are some practical applications and also some uh, historical aspects that are at least worth mentioning. So practically speaking, how is it used today? Most of the time, people are using tapedial reflexes to distinguish conditions such as otosclerosis and superior canal dehiscence. There are some overlapping features of those two diseases. Primarily, it's the low-frequency airbone gap that you can have, as we talked about earlier. There are some other features that help distinguish the two clinically and radiographically, but broadly, most of the time before somebody will perform middle ear exploration with stapedotomy for otosclerosis, you really should have reflexes in your tuning fork, should also agree with it, but your reflexes should be absent in the ipsilateral ear uh, before you're uh, considering the patient to have otosclerosis from a clinical standpoint versus with superior canal dehiscence, generally your stupido reflexes will be preserved. Of historical relevance, uh, we can talk about uh, reflex decay, which we indicated earlier. There are some some tips or pearls or uh, certain patterns that might make you think the patient might have retrocochlear pattern hearing loss, or most commonly that would be a vestibular schwannoma, but it could be a meningioma or a brainstem lesion, et cetera. Um, and some of those are, so a reflex decay, as uh, initially discussed, you're supposed to think, as a clinician, you're supposed to think about retrocochlear pattern hearing loss. There's something called rollover, where your ability to discern words becomes increasingly worse at higher presentation levels. So it's almost uh, the opposite of what you'd expect. If you keep turning up the volume, you'd expect most people to score about the same or even better. Uh, However, people with retrocochlear pattern hearing loss have this phenomenon called rollover, where paradoxically your word recognition score actually deteriorates. Then there's something just that's just generically called retrocochlear pattern hearing loss, and that is the situation where your word recognition scores are just disproportionately poor than what you might expect from your pure tone level. So, for example, if somebody has 30 decibel or 40 decibel high-frequency sensorineural hearing loss and their low and mid-frequencies are preserved, you would imagine that their word recognition scores would generally be quite good. However, some patients with vestibular schwannomas, for example, will have 
uh, worse word recognition score, perhaps 50 or 60 percent, uh, when you'd anticipate they'd have better hearing. And so there are some, some of these things are of historical relevance. Some of them are uh, frequently tested on, but from a practical standpoint, mainly stapedial reflexes, again, are used for distinguishing otosclerosis and superior canal dehiscence. Another aspect of uh, hearing tests that I wanted to touch on uh, is when you're concerned for factitious hearing loss or non-organic hearing loss. Jill, could you tell us about some of the tests that you can consider when uh, this is a concern? One of the first things we'll look at is the agreement between the pure tone average and that speech recognition threshold to make sure that those two measures are aligning, that they are similar. If somebody can hear speech much better or much quieter than they can hear pure tones, we are suspicious that there might be non-organic hearing loss. If somebody is presenting with a significant asymmetry or normal, near-normal hearing in one ear and they're offering thresholds that are quite poor in the opposite ear, we can use something called the Stanger test. This is based on the principle that if I present two similar tones to both ears at the same time, only the louder of those two tones will be perceived. So if I take the example of someone who in reality has two normally hearing ears, but is perhaps offering normal hearing in one ear and moderate hearing loss in the other. I can present two tones at the same pitch. I will make it 10 decibels louder in their better hearing ear. I will make it 10 decibels softer than they're offering in their poorer hearing ear. That, that person, if they are not being entirely honest with what's being offered on the poor hearing side, will hear this loud tone on the ear they have hearing loss in, quote unquote hearing loss, and they will not push the button. However, if you had two normally hearing ears and you heard something 10 decibels better in the better hearing ear, you would push the button. So the Stinger test is very effective at identifying uh, non-organic hearing loss for asymmetries. A positive Stinger means we are suspicious for functional hearing loss. A negative stinger means we are not suspicious for functional hearing loss. And are there some other objective types of hearing tests that could also help parse this out? Absolutely. We can also perform otoacoustic emissions. Uh, that is a very sensitive test of outer hair cell function, and typically where otoacoustic emissions are present, we suspect normal or near-normal hearing. We can also measure the auditory brainstem response, or ABR, which lets us estimate thresholds uh, without relying on a behavioral test. Dr. Carlson, Jill, thanks so much. This has been a great comprehensive discussion of the audiologic evaluation. Uh, before I move on to the summary, is there anything you'd like to add? No, thank you so much for this chance. No, I think you summed it up really well. The only, th As we talked about earlier, I would just emphasize the importance of having a good relationship with your audiology team and having a low threshold for communicating back and forth when things j just don't add up, particularly um, when you're interpreting an outside audiogram and the need for uh, getting additional testing to make sure it's accurate. Great. Well, in summary, the audiologic evaluation includes a behavioral audiometry, which includes pure tone audiometry and word recognition scores. It also includes the tympanogram and stapedial reflexes. Pure tones are obtained at different frequencies in both ears to give an understanding of the frequency-specific hearing, which can be averaged into the pure tone average, or PTA. Air conduction measures hearing from the external ear through the auditory nerve, while bone conduction starts at the cochlea, and the difference between the two is known as the air bone gap. 
The word recognition test uses a set of monosyllabic words to test understanding of words, which is presented as a percentage. And tympanometry measures the ear canal volume as well as the flexibility of the tympanic membrane in comparison to the middle ear space, which are presented as types A, B, and C. Stapedial reflexes, although not used clinically as often as they were historically, measure the reflex arc of hearing, providing some information as to where a lesion might exist that is causing hearing loss, although this mainly pertains to the middle ear currently. In the instance of malingering or non-organic hearing loss, there are a couple of tests that can be performed, the most common of which is the Stanger test. And finally, it's essential to have a reliable audiology center and a good relationship with your audiologist, which could uh, potentially affect clinical intervention. Jill, Dr. Carlson, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'll now move on to the question asking portion of our time together. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds to give you some time to think about the answer, and then give the answer. First question. What are the separate magnitudes of hearing loss when we talk about pure tone thresholds? Although there's some variability in these categorizations, generally we talk about normal hearing in an adult being less than 25 dB, mild hearing loss being between 25 and 40 dB, moderate 40 to 55, moderate to severe 55 to 70, severe 70 to 90, and profound greater than 90. Next question, what are some characteristic hearing loss patterns that we see on the audiogram? Some of the more common characteristic hearing loss patterns are the 4K notch, which is associated with noise-induced hearing loss, the cookie bite pattern, which is associated with congenital hearing loss, sloping high-frequency pattern, which is associated with presbycusis, the upsloping, which is associated with Meniere's, and the Carhartt knot, which is a bone conduction depression at 2,000 hertz. Next question, describe a commonly accepted pattern of asymmetric hearing loss. Although there's some controversy in this, asymmetric hearing loss is often categorized as a difference in 15 decibels over two frequencies or 10 decibels in three frequencies. Some folks characterize a word recognition score difference of 15% as asymmetric, though this isn't uh, entirely reliable. And for our final question, describe the types of tympanometry and correlating pathologies. As we talked about, uh, tympanometry can be type A, B, or C, and then A is broken down into AS or AD. So type AS is associated with otosclerosis and tympanosclerosis. Type AD is associated with acicular discontinuity or a flaccid eardrum. Type B is associated with middle ear effusion or a tympanic membrane perforation if the volumes are large. And type C is associated with negative middle ear pressure or eustachian tube dysfunction. That'll be it for now. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.